0: This is Bab Strolls-Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut, and you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at
1: newhavenindependent.org.
0: Woo! Happy Friday, beautiful people. That was Tony, Tony, Tony uh, anniversary. That song sounds so good. And oftentimes people don't listen to it to the very end because that symphonic piece on the back, oh, ah. Beautiful. I'm Babs Rose Ivy. Welcome to Love Babs Love Talk. It's Friday. And guess what? It's it's another rainy weekend in the (laughs) Elm. I think it's been raining since January every weekend. (laughs) I think think we are rivaling uh, um, uh, Seattle. Uh, I feel better. My voice doesn't sound. Reflect how I feel. But I feel fine. And I'm on cloud nine. So anyway, I woke up early this morning. I was listening to War, uh, not not the not the Israeli Palestine Palestinian war, but War the group, because that's the only war I'm interested in, right? Low Rider, the world is a ghetto. Um, spill spill the wine, don't spill blood. Spill the wine. Damn it, I'm so tired of conflict in the world. And let me tell you why I'm tired of conflict in the world. I'm tired of conflict in the world because we have the tools to not have conflict in the world. I mean, we 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 absolutely have all the tools at our disposal to live in a peaceful, abundant world, and we choose not to. That's it. So until we choose to live peacefully with each other. All around the world, they we'll just die. We'll just keep killing each other. You know, you just you'll just keep killing each other and displacing people and repeating the cycle of uh, of people leaving their land because they can't live there because some other people want the land. And, and this is true everywhere that like <laughs> this, this is why I don't understand Israel and there's and they're, well, I'm not going to say all Jewish people cause it's not all Jewish people. Cause there are Jewish people out there that are protested this very moment about this, what's going on. And they are sick about it. uh But this, this is this, this like anything else around the world the ukrainian people i know there are russian people sitting in their homes in russia like we should not be doing this i know it i know it as i know my name there are people who are sitting not sitting but doing all that they can to broker peace all over the world in different parts of the world wherever there is unrest and war and genocide there are people who are not in alignment and in agreement with any of this. So I, so if I'm mad, I'm mad at humanity because we act as though we don't have the tools, as if somehow or other we've exhausted every possibility for peace and we have not. We haven't even touched the surface of peace. We haven't even walked a mile for peace. You cannot, walls are not gonna save you. Military might is not going to save you. That's not the answer. It's not the answer. Apartheid is not the answer. Anywhere in the world, borders with police and military is not the answer. It is not the answer. So until we are willing to broker toward peace, to walk in truth, then we're going to live with war and our doorsteps all the time. All the time. And we have, and everybody's like, oh, it's complicated. Ain't nothing complicated about peace. You either have it or you don't. That's not complicated. Have conversations with people. First of all, you gotta stop shooting at people. That's how you start. Stop shooting at people. You know, and then own where you were wrong. Own it. You know what? We was wrong for putting up this wall. We were wrong for putting military on these borders. We were wrong. And please, please, people, don't come at me with, oh, people are crossing the borders. People are crossing the borders all over the world. Oh, because when you say that, what you're saying is we don't have enough we don't have enough. Yes, you do. and 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 if you streamline processes for people to come in, then you won't have this foolishness because people people wouldn't leave if that people wouldn't leave places where they were safe and could live peacefully. They wouldn't leave places. who who would leave if if they could be someplace uh, peacefully? You know, but we got people running from terrorists, running from cartels, running from gangs, running from governments, running from, oh, my God, just people are just on the move all around the world. And we act as though we can't stop it. We act as though we, we have no tools. And by tools, I mean language and intellect and diplomacy. To 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 fix this, but we we choose not to. Like we we prefer an act of war, we prefer an act of war. Loss of lives and destruction, as if somehow rather that 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 is uh, uh, the answer. <laughs> let me let me kill so many of you all that it's hardly nobody standing and you'll have to surrender. And I'm sorry, and what would they be surrendering to? And and why would you just wholesale want to kill people? Because, you know, in chasing terrorists and hunting down terrorists and killing terrorists, guess what you are? Terrorists. You know, you think I'm gonna kill, kill everybody on that land, and 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 hopefully I'll get some terrorists. <laughs> There's no guarantee I'll get terrorists, but it'll send a message to the terrorists that I'm willing to kill everybody in my wake to get to you, because that's that's essentially what you're saying, you know. I'm only interested in the in the band war. So Harry, you know Find me some some war today before we get off air. I'm only interested in Lowrider, The World is a Ghetto, um, <laughs> Spill the Wine, all the songs by war. I, that's the only war I'm interested in today. And tomorrow and the next day, and the day after, and the day after. And don't get me wrong, I'm not anybody who thinks uh uh we shouldn't have a military or any of that kind of stuff. Because that's a that's a that's a hard sell for people because people can't imagine not being able to defend themselves, you know from whatever. You know but people like but people build walls walls don't make for good neighbors. i I see it in my old neighborhood. there's so many walls, so many fences, high ass fences. <laughs> I'm like, do you know how fences work? Whatever you're trying to keep in, guess what? You're not going to get out. I'm just, the world is, the world is we to me. The world is wearying to me.
2: Can I say that?
0: But what gives me hope though? What gives me a lot of hope? I was sitting at Hill House High School yesterday for brunch and essays. Because Dr. Sh- Shaka Felder, um, called some of us to gather and work with students on their essays. And it was like three or four categories of students. Students who were just beginning, these are seniors, seniors who are who are writing their essays for college. And and they begin with uh they start they have uh, students who who are at the beginning of their essay, who are you know in the middle of their essay, and those who just need some polishing up of their essay. And so so it was a bunch of us gathered. You know, it was me and Markeisha, Senator Gary Winfield, um, Alder um, um, Jeanette Morris, Ms. Morrison, uh, new brother man, police chief of the state. Uh, I can't call his name. And I don't know if Gary is listening. Gary, text me and tell me what that brother's name is because I can't remember his name. I know he got a big head. <laughs> I, I hope he's not listening this morning and did see me on the street and, you know, had me catch them hands. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but it was good. I was sitting next to a young man. I don't know what his uh nationality ethnicity was, but he was he had a he had a beautifully written um um uh, uh essay uh, and uh, and I enjoyed talking to him. he had a he had a he had a good sense of how to do it i was i was quite impressed um but you know listening to the kids talk listen let me let me say this and maybe I was one of these kids too. But we have young people who are so, so tired of New Haven, so disconnected from New Haven that all they want to do is get out of New Haven. I was talking to a young sister yesterday uh, at the at Hill House, and she was sitting in the back of the class with a, with a, another sister and a young brother. And the young brother wants to go to Morehouse. And he was like, that's his only school. I was like, well, is there some other schools? Like, have some other schools because Morehouse is pretty competitive. And I'm not, you know, not, I'm, I'm praying over him um but the young sister was so adamant about i have to get out of new haven i don't want to be anywhere in connecticut and i could hear in her voice that she has seen too much that she has seen too much and has gone through too much and the only way that she feels like she could have some peace or whatever in the world is to leave her home city Now, I'm all for kids leaving. I I am a huge proponent of kids going outside of their city. But we have to figure out a way to get kids back when they graduate to come back and and make this city uh, what it should be, you know. Um, So that gives me hope, yes, it is, be in communion with these young people working on their essays. Because, you know, they're at the beginning of their lives. I, on the other hand, am at the end. No, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon unless God calls me today or tomorrow or the next minute or whatever. I don't plan on going anywhere. I I I I like to get through law school, pass the bar, and do some time uh, 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 defending folks and working in the system, and, and then possibly teaching. That's what I like to do. Uh, but that's a that's a good amount of time. But I'm, but at the end of the day, I'm still at the end of the day. I'm like, I'm still at the end of the day. Like, I don't have another sixty years in front of me. You know, I don't give a damn what technology is. And and Harry, no, I'm not hooking my brain up. I'm then I could take my consciousness and put it in AI. <laughs> I I want to live like that forever, never, ever, ever. <laughs> I I I like I like I like the feeling of of rain on my body and wind on my cheeks. And I don't wanna be in the system like that where I have to remember what that's like. I don't want that. I wanna taste good ass coffee. So when I go, it's, it's, then it is time for me to go and I wanna be all the way gone. I don't need my consciousness preserved, but I digress. So while I'm thinking about the world and all this craziness, and 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 I never used to feel this way about social media, until, uh, uh, cause I used to be in a bubble about social media. I was like, well, I'm only chatting it up with people that I like and enjoy and like-minded. But when you go outside of your bubble and you see the vitriol, and now I understand why people hate social media because it is, if you go down the wrong road, it is right with uh, vitriol and just and stupidity and ignorance willfully and deliberately. Uh, just across the land and people concern themselves about things that are not even a part of their everyday practical lives. And, and, uh, and if you digest enough of that, you will, you will become disheartened. And, you know, people are lonely because uh, they don't, they don't, uh, they don't get out into the world enough. And I'm no therapist. I'm just playing one on the radio. But I know a lot of lonely people who don't have friends and find it very hard to make friends, or they have friends and they keep them at arm's distance. And that's not having friends. You know, if you only have friends that you keep at arm's distance, that's not having friends, people. That's not having friends. You know, friendship is a deep and abiding thing. Friendship is the cornerstone to any kind of love that you wish to have in the world at all. It is a cornerstone of every love relationship every every parent, every sister, brother, any relationship that you have to another human being, friendship is the foundation for that. and if it isn't, then um you are not experiencing uh love. you're just not so so I have hope in the world because I sat and I sat yesterday and listened to these young people talk about um their their essays you know and it was so and, and let me say this too schools schools feel so much like prison physically feel like prison there was so much security and those brick ass walls and so much checkpoints i I I don't know where I, I was like this I swear to God, I feel like. <laughs> and I can say this because I've been in prison. So it, I, the feeling of prison was in me yesterday, walking those halls. Schools, that school, schools don't feel like places of freedom to me. They just don't, I just didn't feel, I didn't feel like it was a place of freedom. First of all, you can't get any damn Wi-Fi in these buildings. Oh my god, it was awful. And I get it, I guess, cuz you try to curtail kids on their devices and surfing the web and be start on the web and all kinds of foolishness. I get I I get it. I get it. And you know, schools got to shut down all stuff that comes in through the internet. I All right. it just felt like a prison and no shade to people that run schools i i know the work that, that y'all do it's it is admirable it is necessary and 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 you do it with a care and commitment unlike other professions i get i get it because you care about the future of young people and the world so you become an educator to 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 make sure that the world uh, moves forward i listen that is noble. Still, schools feel like prison. It just felt like a prison to me. felt like prison. And I was like, man, this feels like prison. <laughs> I, I couldn't tell the difference. I really couldn't tell the difference. I guess maybe I think the difference wasn't they wasn't in jumpsuits. I mean I wasn't in they, nobody was in khakis. And, you know, to this day, I don't wear khakis. I will never the rest of my damn life wear khakis. I don't wear tan khakis, green khakis, blue khakis. And let me tell you something. Before I went to Danbury Federal Prison Camp, I had khakis. I was your khaki blazer kind of chick and a pair of loafers. I don't wear khakis now. I'll never in my life put on another pair of khakis. I tell you what else I don't like. I don't like white sneakers. I don't own any white sneakers. I don't think I will own any white sneakers. I own some creamy cons that are sparkly. That's it. Because I went to prison. I can't, I, that's just stuff I'm not going to do. I'm just not going to wear khakis. So I don't wear khakis. So, anyway, yesterday Hill House was. Uh, it, it was a good experience. The, the future, the, the future is bright, dystopian and bright, <laughs> bright and dystopian. I don't worry about these babies. I, uh with all the technology and the freedoms that could come along with being a little more freer than when I was a kid, I. This just seems tough. To be a kid. It just seems seems to be tough. And there's conflict everywhere. You can feel it. I don't know. I just think humans, we, we are, we are, we are um we are becoming people that don't deserve to be people. <laughs> I just think humanity is a gift and we are squandering it chapter and verse. But you know, when you when I feel this way, then I I take myself to places that bring me back to myself. Like Sunday, uh the center church on the green is is having poetry Sunday. Can you imagine? And it's going to be with our poet laureate, which I'm I'm uh I'm just uh I'm just amazed. So, uh i'm just I'm just amazed by that because that's what churches ought to be doing, you know so that'll give me that'll give me hope. Why would you send me this? Are, anyway uh, that gives me hope so i so i I always try to pull myself into things that. That give me hope. Like last night, Ife and I showed up at uh, the film, the New Haven Docs Film Festival was going on, and we saw two films. One was uh, uh, uh what was it called? Uh, tender, uh, brief tender light. Um, Arthur Musa uh, did this film, uh, following these four or five African students from various parts of Africa, like uh, 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 Kigali, Rwanda. Um, um, Ghana, uh, Kenya, and uh, somewhere else. Um, and and they all went to MIT because he went to MIT. And uh, he went to MIT like 20 years before they went to MIT. And he was from Ghana. And he was struggling where uh, he thought the film was going to be about <laughs> about Uh, How he felt when he went off in the responsibility of being an African in America, getting an education and going back to Ghana. But then what it really became about for him was he couldn't go back to Ghana because he he uh, he finally admitted to himself that he was gay. And, you know, Ghana is like on some ish right now with trying to pass these ridiculous laws about uh, being gay allies of gays, all this other... I mean, they're trying to punish by death and by prison imprisonment. I'm like, Ghana, you're trying to be world class, but yet you do a colonizer-ish. I need to go over there and be like, Ghana, knock it off. Before colonizers came to those shores, Africans understood that people had duality. They understood this. And you acting as though y'all you're not african but you are more colonizer and by colonizer i mean white british western descent and you're not tap into your own roots get back to your own culture and your own history and do away with this westernized foolishness of trying to harm your own people <sighs> but anyway because It just burns me up when I see this anywhere. I'm thinking, I'm not gay. I've got lots of friends are gay. My children are fluid. Whatever that means for them, I'm with it. Because I love them. I don't care what they do, short of them being serial killers, rapists, and murderers, I'm for them. So anyway, the film was about. So the film ended up being about uh uh, tracking these these students who went to MIT, these African students who went to MIT and their struggles with their identity, trying to be African in America. And when they come to America, they're black. And with all that that comes with being black, like, you know, issues of safety and police brutality and, and being othered and not being welcomed and all these things. And, and it happens to them, right? They, you know, oh, but it was a beautiful film because you don't often sort of see um, that side of, 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 of immigrants, particularly African immigrants. Uh, oh, and Nigeria, the other, the other brother was from Nigeria, uh, African immigrants, uh, and what their struggles are when they get here, you know. I mean, all the things that, that they need to do and be and learn as they are here. So it was a wonderful movie. Um, and, uh, and it followed them for a, a good period of time. They gra- they all graduated. Um, ex- the Nigerian cat got a job, but his visas, Because, you know, America has such a hard-on. Can I say that? Uh, America has such disregard for Nigeria that it? they always make Nigerians have a tough time. And I get it. I, I get it. I understand. Because, uh, you know, Nigerians are the number one scam artists in the world. <laughs> it's not me saying this <laughs> I'm not trying to shame them I'm just saying and so, so the rest of the world is like I ain't messing with Nigerians I get it I understand <laughs> no shame there are, there, every Nigerian is not a scam artist let me be clear but they do run the racket on scams hands down so they always get messed with in the world when they travel, when they, all the stuff. So anyway, so he had to, he had to pack up and go because they wouldn't, they wouldn't uh uh continue his work visa. And he had, he, and he, and these MIT students are like scientists and engineer, all the things that you be when you graduate from uh, MIT and, you know, there's big ass salaries. Right. So he had to pack up and go. And I think he, I think he just went to grad school he's like all right i'm just gonna go to grad school that'll buy me some more time whatever which was fine um then then the um, the guy from kigali rwanda um he was he he he, uh he stayed on and got his master's and then he got into a phd program uh and then he he went back to rwanda to to work on stuff in rwanda that's and he he felt good about that um the Tanzania, I think she was from Tanzania. Yeah, Tanzania. She uh she made her way to New York and she loved New York, so she stayed in New York. And and I could and I loved the way that they centered her in the story because she was like, if I was in Tanzania, the pressure to get married and all this other kind of stuff, I would never be as free as I am right now. And she is absolutely right. There's a level of freedom that exists for uh for her that does not exist for her in Tanzania and so i felt everything about that and so so it was so so it was a wonderful wonderful movie and and the director was there arthur uh was there uh and then we watched a short on uh preschool to prison pipeline and that that film wore me out it wore me out do you know that 50 thousand 3 to 4 three or four year olds uh, get expelled from pre from kindergarten, pre K kindergarten, kindergarten every uh, uh, every year. <laughs> Arrested. They they are arresting three to five year olds for having meltdowns in schools. I've seen y'all yeah, yeah. when you. I've seen one or two videos with these meltdowns and the police come in, and they drag kids out, put them in handcuffs. All this foolishness with babies. But when you see it strung together as a montage, it makes you sick. And, it, and it's all black children, black, black children. There's another one or two white kids, but 90% of them were black, 99% of them were black kids. And so to watch that montage of black girl, mostly black girls, but black boys, lots, just black children get dragged out of classrooms, tipped over desks by police in schools. <laughs> just broke, it just, something in me just snapped. And I, I just couldn't bear it. I I just couldn't bear it. You know, I, I just, and then you know, I sit in a room with white people to watch this happening to black people is a level of prickliness I can't explain, you know? And and to hear white people just catch their breath because they have no connection to any of this. That's the thing. And I think this is the beauty of why film festivals are so necessary so that people can learn something that they don't have uh, access to or it's not in their everyday practical life. But when I saw and the sister, Dr., uh, I can't call her name. I didn't get a chance to talk to her because she had to catch a train back to New York and she had to go to the bathroom. And then we just bounced. Uh, but she she talked she talked passionately about this. And she talked about it from a very personal experience with her brother. And uh, and who among us doesn't have family members, particularly black people. Who got some family members, cousins, uncle, brother, father, somebody who has been in the carceral system. And she she was a um a special ed teacher. And she said she kept saying all these black kids come to special ed. And she's like, they were brilliant. So she's like, I don't understand. She's like, well, well, maybe something's wrong. You know, maybe there's something they're not telling me. <laughs> and come to find out, behavioral problems uh were the reason why black kids are funneled. Uh, into special ed, and then special ed is the gateway, is the is the point of no return for uh, the prison school to prison pipeline. Do you know? You see, I'm you see where I'm going with this. So, uh, so you stand at the so special education becomes the gateway. You know, uh, not unlike the the, you know, the last place that slaves saw before they were, you know, kidnapped to uh, to these shores. And uh, it was just uh, painful, painful. And 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 even though my kids are grown and I'm grateful that I am not raising kids, I, she made a point that, you know, you cannot just because you don't have any kids in the system or just because it still affects you. And that was like a gut punch because I'm always quick to say, I'm so glad I don't have kids in this system right now. But then I have to think to myself, well, the, all these kids are my kids because when 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 these kids are are in in jails and prisons and all these other places, they have to come back into community, and and community is the place where they come back to. And if we're not prepared for them, if we have no awareness, if we have contempt for them, if we don't have any supports in place, guess what happens? then jail becomes a revolving door that jail, prisons become the, 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 the depository for broken children into adults. And if we don't put some stop gaps in place, real stop gaps, you know, we we have got to sort of say, you have to invest in communities. You have to invest in communities more because People come back to community. If there's nothing in place in community, then they have to figure out a way to make a way for themselves. And guess what? You know, because, because you know, there's still this disconnect between incarcerated people and prison. I'm, let me tell you, let me tell you the truth. It, I, I am well-educated. Well-educated. I got a bunch of degrees, right? Which doesn't make you well-educated, but I'm educated and well-traveled and well-read. And I know how hard it was and is for me as somebody that has a felony over their head. And if it's hard for me, imagine, imagine people with less, 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 I mean so much more, less, how hard it is for them, for them. You know, when I was apartment hunting and I tell people, you know, the applications and all this, I would tell them up front uh i'm a felon and and doors would slam in my face and and people i know would recommend me to people that they know who had apartments and i would go see the apartment and once they find out it's me they were like they're excited but then when they find out i don't have great credit uh i went to prison then it's oh you know no thank you and i and let me tell you something and this and this is challenging i i I go with pay stubs. <laughs> I'm gainfully employed like I have a job, I work, I go with pay stubs, I go with all the things that adults you know have just prove that i'm I'm not shady, I'm not gonna get in here and not pay rent or whatever and tear up your property or any of that kind of stuff. like I have to prove that now, if I have to do all this, and I don't say that to say uh I'm better. I'm just saying, if it's hard for me that has all the things that we say people should have to be successful in the in in the world, except for this one thing, how hard it is for people who don't have experience, don't have a, a bona fide work history, who don't have education. And by education, I mean high school diploma, or all they have is a high school diploma, all these things. All these things. All these things. So I, so when I hear people pay lip service to second chances, I hear people say, you know, I just like, mm. <laughs> show me better than you can tell me because I, I can't hear you. Because I, 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 I see people struggling all the time, bouncing from couch to couch because they just got out of prison and they're felons and they got rap sheets and all this other kind of stuff housing is tenuous, employment is tenuous because you know what you know what you can't have a job if you don't have an address if you don't have an address guess what you can't have a job and i i uh, it's it's so anyway that film was arresting to me and, uh, and I, I it just, it just, and you know, this is not stuff that I didn't know. I, I knew the school prison pipeline, but when you see it in a montage, when you see it laid out in front of you, it's hard to reckon with. It's hard to look away from, you know, you know, it's, it's very hard to, 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 you know, that's why I'm grateful that I live in this neighborhood. There's no other neighborhood I want to live in right now, except in you know Kigali, Rwanda. But there's no, there's no, there's no other place that I want to want to be. So when people are talking ish about you know the trials and tribulations of Newhallville, or when they talk about you know poor people, and, and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm with poor people. I said, you know, uh, I I don't I I don't feel afraid in my neighborhood, not one bit. I, I do not feel afraid here. I, I feel like I could be shot anywhere. <laughs> I could be robbed anywhere. There's no place. There's no place in this world where I can't be accosted. Where's that? Where's that for a black woman? There's no place on this planet where I am absolutely safe. No place. That's number one. But I don't walk fearfully in the world. I have an awareness that I don't, I don't, I know that at any moment or any time or any place, some mess could happen. <laughs> now, I'm not inviting trouble because God knows I don't need no trouble. I'm just saying. So I don't, I don't live with this. I live on Bellevue road. And so I feel safer Uh-huh. because uh-uh. people could uh, listen, I've had my car stolen from Bellevue. I had my car broken into on Bellevue. You know? I don't feel uh that's not that's not that's that's not the things that make me feel safe. So I don't concern myself with with being afraid to live in this neighborhood. I like this neighborhood, it's vibrant. I like seeing black people walk down the street. I like seeing young kids running up and down the street riding their bikes. I like seeing kids. You know, and sometimes their parents walking the damn dogs and I know them. I'll say, oh, you walking the dog today. Yeah, he had football practice or she's at violin practice or, you know, it's my turn. to walk. You know, I can't find a child. I got to walk the dog. And these are the kind of exchanges I have off off my porch with my neighbors. I didn't have that on Bellevue. I had this kind of exchange. Everybody everybody pulled into their driveway and went in their house. And if you got your mail, you waved at people. If they was outside, you waved. Hey, how you doing? But it wasn't, I'm intimately involved in my neighborhood now. My neighbors across the street, my neighbors next door, and next door to my left and my right. The neighbors across the street, uh, the Latino family that lives across the way, they got this fully decorated Halloween thing going on. <laughs> So I'm not afraid. There's been some terrible things happen in this neighborhood in the three years that I've lived here. There's been a bunch of shootings over here. I'm not afraid. I cannot be in the world afraid. I just just won't. So, So when they see me walking, they see me walking. When they see me outside, they see me outside. You're like, oh, that's the that's the fancy lady on the porch. <laughs> the fa- I'm the fancy lady. <laughs> you know, because I'm 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 old in court. You know, my friends come, they hang out, we drink wine, we eat, we drink. I'm just chilling. I'm just building a little community like that. You know. So th- there's a lot of things that got my interest, a lot of things that just trouble me, a lot of things that bring me joy. You know, but that film last night worked my nerves. You know, I don't have the wherewithal to go to anybody's board of education meeting. And let me tell you why, because I I served on the board of education for Common Ground. I was the chair of the board for a good while. And when it was, and I stepped on because I think I was there for like damn near 10 years. I was like, it's time for me to go. And I didn't pull no punches with 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 the teachers, parents, None of them. If they talked ish to me, I gave it right back. I, you know, and they're like, "Oh, you work for us." I, don't, I don't, I don't work for you. This is, I'm volunteering to do this, and I, and I volunteer wholeheartedly because I care deeply. You know, I tell you, I was telling somebody the other day. I said, "You know, I was, my son graduated from Common Ground. My ex husband and I were sitting in the audience up until the last minute. We were like, is he really graduating?' Like, <laughs> his child, we was worried." <laughs> we sitting there until the last minute. I mean, when they actually handed him his diploma and we rushed the stage to make sure it was a real one. Cha. <laughs> he was like, oh my God. you talking about somebody relieved? Because <laughs> you don't know what it took to get that boy to graduate. Because he had dropped out. Uh, but he graduated. And he told us that in that moment, he said, Mom, Dad, college is not for me. I said, But Gregory, how you know? He's like, Mom. He's like, You see how hard it was for me to get out of high school? (laughs) I said, But Gregory, college is a whole different vibe. He's like, I don't want to know it. (laughs) I was like, Okay, son. I had to respect it because he he wasn't, you know, my son Gregory is not a hyper person. He's a very relaxed, he's Virgo. So he's a very relaxed, easygoing, you know, chill, chill. I had to respect it because, you know, I was on this thing about all of them going to college, all of them. And, And then that's when I started to realize that it's not about what I want. It's what they want in their best interest of themselves. And I think as a parent, some parents don't get that. Some parents will go, will push their children and direct their lives to the point that these children have no no sense of, of ownership of their own lives. And so they get in the world and they don't know how to maneuver the world. And so sometimes they roll off the wheels because they roll off the rails because they get a taste of independence and freedom that they weren't given as they were coming up. So they make bad decisions. (laughs) Now we all make bad decisions. That's how we learn. And you know, these parents who think they're trying to stave off bad decision making, uh uh-uh. Because they either they listen, at some point you're not going to be able to direct their lives. And if you're still directing their lives as adults, that's that's on you. Stop directing people, let them be who they are. And you know, there are some parents who think what their children do and is, is a reflection of their, of them and their parenting skills and their culture and their heritage. And to some extent, a little bit of that is true, but for the most part, people become individuals. You know, I, I, I say this all the time. I see it all the time with people. People can be grown up in the same household and have different values and do stupid, really stupid things, you know? So, uh, it's not like they didn't hear the same, same message. <laughs> they just went a different way with it. So, you know, there, there's a, I, I, and I, I stopped myself uh, before it was too late, before I ruined the relationships that I have with my children. And once I took, once I took my hands off the steering wheel and let them drive their own lives, uh, it, it, it got a lot better for me and them. Now I don't like the decisions that they make, but, I'm sure they don't like the decisions I (laughs) make. I damn sure don't like the decisions that they make. But, you know, here I am. I'm the consultant to their lives. I'm not the manager of their lives. You know, when I was the manager, I made them do all kinds of stuff. You know, you're going to go to this class. You're going to do this. You're going to take this music. You're going to do this. You're going to, you know. And then when they became adults, I took my hands off the steering wheel. It's like, all right, y'all do what you want to do. I got you call me when you need me you know call me when you need me I'm around let me know keep me keep me posted that kind of stuff you know that kind of stuff so uh that film really got me yesterday this got me. You know, these little children go to school. And, you know, so many parents are at a loss because, and the, and, the, and the director of the film, the producer of the film, the maker of the filmmaker, she was like, you know, when schools tell parents something about their child, parents don't necessarily question it because they think, well, if it's the school, they have my kid's best interest. So if they're telling me this thing, um, okay. That's the level of power that schools have over children. Now, what do we do? We have to empower parents to, to, to push back on, on, on suggestions and narratives that are coming their way. And how do we do that? Well, we have to empower and educate parents, you know. Uh, and that's why gathering parents is such a, a, a big deal, you know, and the training of parents uh, is a, a, a big deal. You know, parents are the first leaders, the best leaders uh, and the best advocates uh, for their children. Now, I'm not talking about every parent. So don't I I know that there are some awfully, awfully terrible parents out there. I know I've I've adopted four kids. I know that the things that people are capable of doing to their children that make them lose their children. (laughs) That's some real stuff. So I'm not talking about those parents. I'm talking about the parents who show up and who are willing to do whatever is necessary to get their kids from A to B to C to D, all the way to Z. All right. Those parents, the parents that are are for it, not the parents who are not for it. You know, we have to distinguish that sometimes because people, people hear what they want to hear and ready to, you know, storm the castle gates with some foolishness. I talk about every single parent. There are some good parents and there's some not so good parents. And we know that. So we're not gonna have that argument or that conversation. What I'm talking about is the parents who 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 need some support around uh, and some confidence. Because you know, when you deal with boards of eds or you if you ever been to an IAEP thing, an IEP, and they talk that language, because I had to do it. I had to do it with my son Khalil. And uh, and they didn't really know who I was when I stepped in there. I could tell they didn't know, because they was talking to me as if, you know. I don't know what they. Lawrence <laughs> uh, and I was sitting there, and uh, and he, he could feel me get heated, so he put his hand on my hand to like, don't don't un- don't unleash the cracking just yet. <laughs> and uh, you know, and it felt like an inquisition. You know, you sit around a table, you sit on a, in front of them, and they sit around you. And it feels like it's like five people and it's like an inquisition and it's very intimidating, you know, particularly they're all educated and they think you're not, you know, or they know that you're not and they spurt off that met. And it's usually some young white people, you know, sitting in front of you talking to you as if they know better. I've I've had this experience. That's why I'm talking about it. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, all right, let me. <laughs> I'm gonna give them a few more minutes of this ish and I'm gonna go to their asses. I'm gonna set them all on fire. But well, I'm gonna let them finish their song and dance. I'm gonna let them dance their little asses right into the flames. And damn if they didn't. I got up there and I. You know, started talking in my little serial killer voice. You know, when you drop your voice down an octave or two and you speak softly so they have to lean in to hear you. Yes. I was like, let me tell you something. <laughs> you know, and then you got to slap them with the language that they think you don't know how to use. See, that's, that's you know, we those of us who know how to do it, we do it. That cold switching is a real thing. You know, we know how to get in those spaces and use their language to slap them upside the head. And then we get back in our spaces and we talk the way we want to talk. So sometimes you got to do that with people, particularly white people, because they'll try you. (laughs) Let me tell you something, I've been trying. So you have to to deal with that foolishness, right? And I had to like bring them to task. And by the time I walked out of there, they had a whole different plan. Because I was like, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to do that i was like i don't know who y'all are used to talking to but let me tell you what we do at my house all right let me tell you and i was already doing way more at my house than they was even doing in the schools so i had to let me correct that so i had to get them told i remember one time my my uh, you know when i was teaching my children literacy and, and you know the love of books and i remember clear was so gung-ho about reading that he would read so much so he had a little sheet of books uh, a little, t- you know, they had the little sheet to keep a log of the books. And I remember he went to school one time, and the teacher was like, "You couldn't possibly read these books," and uh, and she said that to him in a nasty ass way. So he came home, and uh, and he didn't want to read. And I was like, oh, "You love reading, like I we did, we went to the library, and got all these books. You like these books?" My teacher didn't believe that I was reading these books. That you know. <laughs> Oh, the next day I got on my broom and I went to that school and I said, I'm sorry, let me, let me get a Or I, uh, I said, let me, let me get the teacher, his teacher and the principal right now. And they were like, oh no, we can make an appointment. I said, oh no, no, I'm here right now. Let's, let's do this right now. I said, find somebody to take care of her class for five minutes and get me in the principal's. I swear to God, get me in the principal's office. And I got in there, I said, let me tell you something. I don't know why you would insist on calling my son a liar. I mean, he was a liar, but he wasn't lying about this. (laughs) I said, he read every one of these books. Let me tell you how I know, because I sat with him and he read these books, every last one of them to me. And let me tell you something, I have four kids. Can I tell you how exhausting that is to sit with four different kids that hear these books? Well, I said, I did it. I said, because my commitment to literacy is such... Girl, she apologized. He got an award at the end of the year for the most books read. And I admit that. Now he's a liar about a lot of things, but he wasn't lying about the books. All right, I'll be back. It's uh, October is uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And I got some folks coming on to talk about a subject that I didn't know existed. So anyway, um, Dr. Andrea Silber and attorney Emily Rock uh, are the medical and legal side of an innovative medical legal partnership which provides civil legal aid to breast cancer patients at Yale Haven Hospital. So they'll be on at 1015 and we could get into this and hear what it's about. So I'll be back. <laughs>
2: mm It was the 3rd of September. That day I'll always remember. Yes, I will. 'Cause that was the day that my dad. I just hung her head and said, son, Papa was a roller stone. Thank you. Thank you
0: Welcome back to the second hour of Love Babs Love Talk. We had a little bit of technical issues, but we back. So this morning I get to talk to Dr. Uh, Andrea Silver and uh, attorney Emily Rock. And they're here to talk about something that I had no idea about. So this October is uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And um, they're going to talk about this, I guess, uh, uh, this project that they got going on at the at over at Yale, uh, for folks who uh, for women, um, uh, it's a medical and legal side of an innovative medical legal partnership, which provides legal aid uh, to breast cancer patients at Yale New Haven Hospital. Is that is that right? So Dr. Silber is the associate director for clinical research at the Center for Community Engagement and Health Equity at the Yale Cancer Center and a professor of medicine at the Yale University School of Medicine, um, and uh, 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 they're going to talk about this. So, and Emily Rock is the Senior Clinical Fellow of the Medical Legal Partnership. Good morning and welcome.
3: Thank you so much for having us. I'm
0: Thank so you, Babs. That, I'm so glad that y'all are here because, I, you know, we talk about breast cancer awareness, but we're always talking about, oh, go get your mammogram and just, you know, make sure you handle all that stuff, early detection, all of that. But what is this story? Like, what is this uh, a part of breast cancer patient's stories?
1: Well, I'm going to start here by saying breast cancer is not just affecting a cancer cell. It's affecting a woman. If it affects a woman, it affects her family, her community. And we can't treat people like they are just a cancer. No, they're not they're a woman with cancer. And because of that, we have to address other issues besides addressing the treatment for the cancer. And maybe Emily wants to chime
3: in here and we'll talk more about it. Sure. So Dr. Silver was really um, the innovator behind this particular medical-legal partnership. And at Yale Law School, we have a number of different MLPs, Medical Legal Partnership, um, serving different patient populations. And the oncology is one of our newest ones. We started it about two and a half years ago at Smilo. And um, I think what we've seen since we started is the ways that legal issues are interconnected with health issues and affect each other. So someone who's in treatment for breast cancer and can't get time off work and their employer isn't granting them leave that they're entitled to under the FMLA or the ADA. Um, you know, they're in a bind or you can't continue treatment and be out of a job or um, uh, keep your job and not do treatment. So um, it comes up in a lot of issues, employment, housing, uh, public benefits, um, where these things affect a person's ability to continue treatment and get the help they need and their treatment affects these other areas of their life.
0: This is fascinating to me, this whole medical legal partnership. Because I don't think people sort of think about, I don't want to say this is on the back end of things, but this is not, this doesn't get the same attention that when we talk about breast cancer, we we always talk about actual breast cancer and what that means. But we don't talk about uh, what happens when, just like you said, if people have to take time off, because everyone just assumes, oh, your employer will be understanding and who wouldn't want to help you, support you through this? And and why would somebody deny you time off to take, you know, to save your own life? But apparently, this is such a problem that you have to have some kind of legal uh, uh, disruption in in what is happening to women. And when, and so when did this? How how did this come up about? Did were you just seeing so many of these same kinds of stories of people can't? you know, uh, I have to fight back and feeling helpless and powerless to fight back?
1: Well, after taking care of women for over 30 years, uh, one thing became really clear. Women are going to take care of their family before themselves. They put their family first. And that means if they have a child who needs help or an older parent that needs help or You know, anything that has to do with financial issues, they are going to try to take care of it. And that can delay treatment. It can also mean that someone when they're coming in for something like chemotherapy, uh, they may not be able to come in. And those kinds of things really do affect outcome. So, our thought was particularly New Haven, you know, New Haven has a really poor community, and often people in that community are people of color. And even though they're very close physically to a cancer center, there are barriers that may keep them away from treatment. And then we thought about this medical legal partnership as a way to help women when they're at their most vulnerable time. To navigate some of those issues. Wow.
0: Okay. So, tell me some of these. Uh, so, so when a woman comes to Smilo for breast cancer, does this inf- is this information readily available? Like, how do people find out about what they should do if they are experiencing some kind of form of 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 not being able to take time off or some kind of barrier getting them the care that they need?
3: Right, so we work with um, with Dr. Silber and her team, other doctors, social workers. Um, so any of those providers um, can refer a patient to me and my legal team. Um, so, you know, we've kind of given the providers an overview of the kinds of issues that we can help with and not everything is in our wheelhouse, but if it's a legal issue that isn't something that we can address, then often we can refer them to someone else who can help. Um, so we have a broader network. Um, And then uh, either me and my um, uh, uh, student law students um, follow up with patients. And so it's also a clinical program on the law school side. So training law students to get that experience working directly with clients, serving the population in the place where they live um, and getting trained on how to be a a lawyer um, with a social conscience, uh, working for the public good and on behalf of vulnerable people.
0: So is this a, are you, do you take cues from what is going on in the country? Like are other places having this experience? This is not unique to New Haven.
3: Right. And medical legal partnerships have been uh, growing across the country. And as I said, we're addressing different patient populations. So there are other oncology medical legal partnerships. um, And then other ones, some of the others that we work on um, are working with, um, people returning home from incarceration, um, palliative care patients, um, geriatric patients who have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia, um, undocumented immigrants. So those are all different patient populations where we partner the law side with the medical side to help address um, these these issues together. So, so
0: Dr. Silver, when you, when, when women are coming in for care, how do you find out that they are, you know because women are 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 uh, uh, has been my experience. Women are not very forthcoming with sharing, well, this is what's happening in my life, you know, shame, embarrassment, just don't want people to know, just trying to soldier through. How do you find out that if someone is needs this medical uh, law uh, partnership?
1: That's a great question. And um, when we talk about my team, my team isn't just me. It's not just me and nursing. It is everyone who that patient meets. That may be the person who checks them in. It may be the person who's taking their blood pressure, who may be their cousin and say to me, you know, so-and-so, she's about to lose her housing. So sometimes it comes from the patient directly to me, But often it is a team effort. And I can't tell you how many times the women who are checking those patients in, getting weighed, who are often community members themselves, may tip me off, you know, so-and-so's not doing well today. She's got this going on in her life.
0: Okay. So uh, this partnership, I'm looking at your flyer um, that you sent uh, the other day, which is, I mean, this just blows my mind because I had no idea that this even existed, but um, you help with uh, if people have issues with applying for disability or other benefits, which I would imagine, Emily, is overwhelming. Like paperwork can be overwhelming when you're in the midst of some
3: kind of care, right? Exactly right. And even things that, um, you know, from the perspective of a lawyer or law student seem like maybe sort of a straightforward set of forms to fill out. It can be really daunting and just the sort of sheer number of pages that you have to fill out. Um, And so we have worked to um, educate patients and providers. And so Social Security Disability Insurance is one example where we put together a guide for patients that says, here's the information you're going to need to have to apply. Here are the different ways you can apply. Here are all the forms you need in one place. And then as you work on it, if you have questions and need help completing the application, you can come back to us and we can work with you.
0: And so, and and then it talks about, you have, uh, I'm going through the bullet points, employment, including accommodations. What what does that mean?
3: Right. So someone who's going through uh, through treatment, depending on their treatment regimen, they may need to take time off from work, but then they also might need an accommodation like they're in a, uh, you know, immunocompromised state. And so they're not able to work in person, even though their job is usually in person, but with the accommodation of working remotely, they could continue to work. And so um, working with the employer to grant those accommodations, which under the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, reasonable accommodations are something that a person um, has a right to uh, when they're undergoing cancer treatment. Um, And like you said, we would want to think that all employers are going to be understanding and say yes to whatever, you know, their employees need, but it's not always that straightforward. And sometimes we do have to push back on employers who are denying what we think are really a reasonable request.
0: And and and, and you're dealing with uh, immigration issues, which I can't even imagine, because the level of fear that immigrants have, I mean, I, I know they're not coming to the doctor. And if they are coming to the doctor, it's at the, the dire and, and they're not telling you what's going on. So so, so talk a little bit about that population and, and what that looks like.
3: Sure. Um, and so we do have, work with um, the Haven Free Clinic, which is run by medical students and is um, all for patients who are uninsured, which ends up being um, largely undocumented folks. And so that's our medical legal partnership where immigration come up, issues come up the most. In the oncology context, what's come up most often is someone who's here from another country, they may have citizenship or other type of status, but their family is all back in their home country, and they're going through treatment, and they can't drive, they can't cook for themselves, they can't clean, they need the assistance of their partner or uh, mother and father or, you know, adult child, and so we can help them expedite the visa process for a family member um, because of the medical need. So that's that's the particular situation that's come up most often for us. Mm which obviously makes a big difference to have that kind of support um, when you're going through some yes. radiation.
1: And also keep in mind in New Haven, one in five people, English is a second language. We do have translator services. Um, there are people on staff who are bilingual and we make sure we have a certified interpreter regardless of the language to try to make sure people can even access these forms in their native language. Mm.
0: And then you have a bullet point of estate planning. And so I would imagine that means what happens when you pass or preparing to pass. I mean I don't even know how you have those kinds of
1: conversations. What happens there? Right.
3: And those I don't do you want to start?
1: Well I was just going to say um Breast cancer generally affects middle-aged women, but the average age is 63. That means 50% are younger. There are young women who have children and it may involve things like custody, what happens if they don't survive. And I usually explain to people, affluent women have estate plans and they have those arrangements. And it's not something which is offered to women who don't have the same amount of assets, but it's really important. What would happen if you're not gonna do well with this breast cancer? And unfortunately, um, one in 10 women come in in the door with advanced cancer at the time of diagnosis. So um, while it's scary and frightening, I'll say to my patients, I have an estate plan. I know what would happen to my children. This is something that's important. This is not something that's going to um, make <laughs> make someone succumb to cancer. It's just protection in case that happens.
3: Wow. I, I would add that I think it really can give patients peace of mind to know that their wishes will be honored. And, you know, hopefully a will that we help them draft won't You know they won't nothing will need to happen with it for many many years and and they'll live a long life but knowing that they have made those provisions and that whatever possessions they have they can make a plan for who will get them um you know i think we often think of estate planning as kind of a realm for more affluent people but everyone has some belongings you know of even sentimental value whether it's financial Mm -hmm. or not and um making decisions about who in your family who in your life you want to inherit um and you, who you want to administer your estate those are all things that um, as Dr. Silber says it can be scary to contemplate but can also i think really bring peace of mind to have it sorted out and know that you're not leaving your children to deal with that
0: wow so so as soon as someone gets a, a diagnosis of a, a a a breast cancer uh how soon do you all sort of uh try to raise awareness about uh, medical, legal partnerships?
1: Well, that can happen at the first visit. When you outline what the treatment might entail, maybe it's not the first, it might be the second, but when you say this is going to be what you need to get better, it may be months, months of chemotherapy plus radiation plus surgery. And when you say to someone, look, you're going to have to be here maybe weekly for months. People say, but I can't do that. I have to work. If I don't work, I don't get paid. If I don't get paid, I can't pay my rent, take care of my family, all those things. So that triggers something. We also at Smilo have a questionnaire, an iPad questionnaire, which people fill out prior to being seen. But um, you're so right when you talk about shame, and people not wanting to say what the story is, but often in the context of taking care of someone, they're trusting you with their life um, to give them treatment. And sometimes where someone might not even make eye contact during the first visit by the third visit they may be saying look this is what it really is i have an example of something i had a patient who was ill and she wasn't coming to the emergency room when we would call her and say look if you're feeling this way you need to go to the emergency room well I wasn't aware that at the age her children was that were that she couldn't leave them alone. She was afraid that DCF might come in if they were found to be alone. So these are things, you know, it is always a learning process for me because everyone has their own individual issues. But in a context of trusting each other, maybe, you know, we can help each other, help they can help me help them and then so, I'll bring Emily in I
0: I I would imagine so Emily tell me how far do you have to go legally when someone says you know what my boss is being you know he's like you know my boss is being X Y and Z is it a, is it enough to send a letter from an attorney to say listen these are the rights in Connecticut you must comply or do you have to
3: haul people into court like what <laughs> It's a great question, and I think one of the really uh, one of the strengths of the MLP model is often we're able to get involved before it's really reached a crisis point. So many times someone will come and say, I'm concerned because, you know, I talked to the HR person and they said they weren't sure they would approve my leave or, you know, it's in a kind of in between state where they're worried about their job security, but they haven't actually been fired or had accommodations denied. And so sometimes it's a matter of just educating the patient about what their rights are. And yes, you are entitled to that kind of accommodation. And under the Family Medical Leave Act in Connecticut, you are entitled to 12 weeks of paid leave in most cases. And if your employer isn't telling you that, they should be. Um, and then kind of the next step is like you say, a lot of strongly worded letter often will do the trick, um, somehow, you know, having that Esquire behind, uh, behind my name can <laughs> get that, get, um, Start fear of God.
0: that's what it'll do.
3: <laughs> yes. Um, so it, it, it's pretty rare that we would actually get to the point of going to court, but that's always when we take on a case, we're agreeing to kind of follow through with whatever it takes. Um. So if, you know, if we think someone has a valid claim, we'll take it all the way to to trial if that's if that's what needs to happen.
0: And and do you see this with um um housing too? Like when housing becomes tenuous for people,
3: um, absolutely, yes. You know. And right, we have um, and that's another area where ideally we're getting involved before there's an eviction on a person's record because unfortunately once the judgment of eviction has entered, it's very hard to find a new place and it becomes kind of a vicious cycle. So if we can get involved, maybe when a landlord has told the tenant that they intend to uh, evict them, but they haven't actually initiated court proceedings or they've just started and you know it's early in the process, we can file an appearance and help the patient tenant kind of navigate that situation or talk to the landlord's attorney and kind of negotiate a deal that will allow... Um, a patient to stay in their home for some period of time while they secure new housing because as you can imagine if you're a cancer patient having uh stable housing is of course um even more important than for the average person I'd say
0: so so i i know uh this medical uh legal partnership is not unique to women but women seem to be the most vulnerable in these kinds of these kinds of things i would imagine um uh, because breast cancer is such a private even though the, the marketing and the awareness raising you know every October we're all wearing pink but it's still um uh, it's still very uh debilitating to women and it's still very a silent kind of club of women who are are trying to navigate these waters and I can't imagine um being sick um and having to like, deal with the legalities of things.
3: Right. It just adds it's kind of insult to injury to have to deal with those things. And often I think um, being someone who can listen to a person's story, that in itself is powerful. And for us to be able to um provide a safe place for someone to share what's been going on and what's challenging for them. And you know, unfortunately sometimes from a legal standpoint, the answer is there isn't a legal remedy. but I consider that to be you know it's not as helpful or satisfying as when you can um get a great legal outcome for someone but it's still information to to explain why not every time your boss is being a jerk you know is there a legal answer to that um and so we're still providing that listening ear and then that kind of informed information so that they can plan accordingly
0: So, so dr silver um, I, I understand you're like a leading, one of the leading doctors around black women and breast cancer care. Is that, is that accurate to say? Well,
1: that's the I'm just, I'm just reading that and in maybe, all the medical maybe, stuff. No, but um, I've been in New Haven since 1981. The people of New Haven taught me how to be a doctor when I came here. I, you know, was young and didn't really know what to do. And this is my time to give back to the families and the people that trained me. Um, and I find it very gratifying. I mean, there are always things I learn. October, in addition to being Breast Cancer Awareness Month, is also Domestic Violence Month. Mm. Um. When I started in oncology, I didn't realize how big a problem this is. And when you talk about shame and keeping silent, there are other things that come up that we can help. Whether it's legal, whether it's social work, or whether it's just giving someone a number to give them a safe space, uh, there are all sorts of things that I see, and it it is my time to be giving back. I mean, that's the, you know, I wouldn't be here if it were not for the community of New Haven. And I do a lot of outreach and community education. And once someone came up to me and said, wait, you're a doctor, you make money. Why are you doing this? (laughs) You know, I said, that's why it's important for me to do this. It's important for Yale. It's important for the Cancer Center. Because women of color disproportionately do worse with breast cancer, and it has a 40% increased risk of death for Black women with breast cancer. Some of that has to do with the kind of breast cancer that you see in Black women, but some of it has to do with these other things that we can't quite figure out that have to do with um very obvious barriers and some barriers that are a lot more subtle, but need to come down for everyone to get equal care. Hmm.
0: I, I would imagine, Emily. Um, this is the legal matters is not just about young people. You got some elderly folks that you know, and I don't like. I, I, I really don't want to. You know, I'm sixty, so when I say elderly, I'm always thinking about other people. But you know, women who are uh, uh, are in my age cohort um who you know almost about to retire uh maybe gotten divorced maybe the children are all at the house um I, I would imagine that you would see some of those because those issues are different than say someone who's
3: 40. you know the legal issues are a little different right i mean we really see such a range um you know as dr silber mentioned there are the young women who have young families and children All middle aged women all the way up to I've worked with patients in their 70s and 80s Um, and you're right often you know it might not be an employment issue at that point, maybe it's um, accessing retirement benefits or. um, You know, some of that estate planning If you haven't had a chance or haven't thought it through before this is an opportunity to make those plans set up a power of attorney if that's something you want draft a will. Um, so, so I would say the issues, um, can vary, um, and it's, it's a privilege to get to work with such, um, such a diverse range of patients and hear their stories. I mean, I really think it's, um, it's an honor to get to, to be there for them. And, and I learn from every, every patient that I work with, certainly.
0: Mm. And so, uh, so the, so the students that you work with, Emily, do they go off into law firms and get law firms to to have medical uh, uh, legal partnerships? Cause it just, just sounds so new. I don't.
3: <laughs> yeah, so it's it's definitely been growing over the last, I'd say 20 years and accelerating probably over the past 10. And we do have law students who graduate and go on to form new medical legal partnerships. We have a couple students who graduated last year who this year have stayed in New Haven and are working at nonprofit organizations continuing the same kind of work, which is wonderful to see. Um, And my feeling about it is even for the law students who might go on to a corporate job, um, they still are carrying with them that experience of working directly with indigent people who wouldn't otherwise have access or be able to afford an attorney. And I think that that lived experience of working with that kind of population does change people's attitude and and thinking. And, you know, maybe they'll keep it in mind when they figure out what pro bono activities they'll do Mm -hmm. um, with their firm. So, Um, I I hope that we are providing good training for them. I think we are. And the students bring such passion and enthusiasm and intelligence. And so it's um, just really lovely to see them get to grow and flourish as kind of new practitioners um, in the field.
0: And so, Dr. Silver, I would imagine that having a medical legal partnership helps you do better at what you need to do on the medical side to help alleviate some of this worry and fear.
1: Absolutely, because when someone's coming to me and saying, can you help me with my visa issues or I need to have um, a letter to my employer to be able to say to Emily, help me out here. That gives me more time to focus on the treatments which are really complicated and explaining treatments to people takes a lot of time and this way we can kind of highlight the medical issues but make sure the social issues are cared for as well
0: well I so enjoyed this conversation this morning I feel like I've learned something that I didn't know before (laughs) and uh you have a a flyer and if people and I know people are listening and I know people are intrigued by this because I'm getting messages Uh, but I want to put um uh, if people want more information or a consultation, they can contact Emily Rock. Yes. correct? Oh thank okay. you, Harry, for putting in the in the drive, um uh, in the in the chat. Um at 203 787 8149. That's Emily Rock or Emily.rock at yale.edu. Wait, is it yes, Emily.rock at uh yale edu. Are you related to Chris Rock? I, I just that's such a cool name.
3: Sadly <laughs> uh, no. Uh, no. <laughs> Um, but yes, people can certainly contact me. And I'll also say um, the program is still in need of support. So if there are people out there who think that this sounds like something that they would like to um, contribute to in some way, get in touch with us. Um, it is still a pretty new program. And um, we're very excited to receive the um, a grant from the very first federal um, medical legal partnership grant uh, passed by the federal government with the help of Representative Rosa DeLauro. Um, so that uh, I think things hopefully will keep moving in this direction of recognizing the importance of this work and the intersection of all these issues.
0: That is such a good thing. Oh, high five to uh, Rosa DeLauro for uh, looking out for the best interest of uh, people. So, and uh, thank you, Dr. Silver. And thank you, Emily Rock. I appreciate y'all coming on this morning and helping uh, expand this uh, breast, hist- uh, uh, breast Cancer Awareness Month conversation. I appreciate you very much. And come back. And, and keep me posted on uh, all the good work that you do. And if you create a new flyer, send it to me. I'll post it up. <laughs>
3: Thank you so much for having us. This has been such a delight.
0: I'm so glad. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, stay in touch with me. And let me know uh, the work that y'all are doing. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having us. And shout out to every breast cancer survivor and people who live with breast cancer survivors. Um, they are amazing. And that's why we do this work.
0: I appreciate it, and I'm gonna pass this on because I have a I have a girlfriend right now who just got diagnosed. A very good, close girlfriend, and uh, and you know she's uh she's having she's struggling a little bit of with struggling a lot with this. So so this I feel like I can send her this pod. You know, becomes a podcast, and she can listen, and then she'd have some more tools in her in her in her uh her toolbox to to move forward. So thank you all so much for this.
1: Thanks again. All right.
0: Enjoy your weekend. You too. Be you too. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, Harry. Thank you uh, so much. I'll be back Monday. I believe I have collective consciousness uh, on on Monday. They've got a new play and I'm looking forward to talking to them, but uh, it's still October. So if you had not have your mammogram, go get one. And there's places all over the city where you can access and, sign up and go get get it done there's a van there's everything so so go and get those girls checked out and uh i will see y'all on monday